All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and ask your help for us that you would cause us to be filled with faith and hope and uh, courage and strength, that we would honor you and live for you, that we would worship you. Lord, have mercy on us as we look at the new covenant this morning. um, I pray that you would do your work in us and cause us to do what you command. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are, week 14. This is the last week of this series. We've, we've seen that God entered into a covenant. Here's, let's just do a real quick recap, all right? We've seen that uh, God entered into a covenant with creation itself. Remember this? Is, I'm going all the way back to the beginning now. It's called what I call the universal covenant. He is the covenant Lord of all creation. Creation is duty-bound to worship and serve him. And then we saw that God, when God made Adam, he made a covenant of works with Adam and placed him on the earth as a covenant head. And Adam was to fulfill the, the positive aspects of that covenant, which were fruitful marriage, faithful labor, and restful Sabbath. Remember this? And also... He was to fulfill this negative focal aspect of the covenant of works. He was not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we saw that Adam failed to obey that one prohibition and therefore brought death and judgment to all of his people, the whole race of mankind, whom he represented as the covenant head. Well, still not there. (laughs) Hey, there we go. So here we are, universal covenant, covenant of works. With, uh, with Adam. And we've also seen that God did not abandon his people to have, abandon his purpose to have a people for himself who lived gladly and obediently under his authority and provision, even with the fall of Adam. Right after that fall, right at the point when the Lord was pronouncing judgment on the serpent for leading Adam and Eve to rebel against him, the Lord made this promise that he would Shape, that, that would shape the rest of history from that point on all the way through into eternity. And that promise is Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That is the covenant of grace. The first promise of it is in Genesis 3.15. God's pledge to crush Satan and to rescue his people. But what becomes clear as we look throughout Scripture and through the rest of the Bible is that, that that was not plan B. All right, God announcing that he would crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman was not some scramble plan to fix something. That goes all the way back into eternity, past. God had always had this eternal purpose to save his people from their sins. We see that all over scripture. We see it real, real clearly in places like Ephesians 1, where it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 3, 11, that calls all of this, says this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's an eternal purpose that he carried out in time. That eternal purpose we call the covenant of redemption. The purpose between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to save people. 
And then we saw that the covenant of grace that God first promised in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam's rebellion, would unfold progressively over time in history through a series of what we call historical covenants, right? So God's covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel through Moses, the covenant with David. All of those historical covenants were God's way in history of preparing the way for this ultimate fulfillment of his covenant of grace. And the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace is the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The new covenant is the culmination of all the promises of the other historical covenants. All right, did you understand what I said? The new covenant in Christ is the culmination of the covenant of grace that unfolds progressively over time through the historical covenants but ultimately culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ. In the new covenant, the Lord promises to create a new heavens and a new earth that will endure forever. That is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant with Noah. Right? When God said, I will never destroy that this way again, that's a shadow. The ultimate fulfillment is the new heavens and new earth. In the new covenant... The Lord promises to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? Ultimately, Jesus. And you and I, if we believe, but only because we're in Jesus, okay? That's the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. He will bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. Do we have no slides? Oh. Okay. Do we, can I move them? I can't move them, can I? Okay. Oh, boy. All right. That's, that's discombobulating. All right. Um, <laughs> in the new covenant, the Lord promises to write his perfect moral law on the hearts of his people, as we'll see in a minute. And he promises to atone for their sins perfectly and permanently. That is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise or God's covenant with Moses. The law in the heart, sins forgiven. And in the new covenant, the Lord promises to put a king on his throne who will reign forever, whose kingdom will, will fill the earth and will never pass away. That's God's, the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with David. All of that is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace. Nope, go back. All of that is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant of grace, okay? This is all organically connected. And that covenant of grace is God's original and unstoppable promise to save his people from their sins, to make for himself a people for his own possession, dwelling in his kingdom forever, enjoying the presence of God forever. That's what the covenant of grace is. It's ultimately fulfilled and brought to fruition in Christ. Now, go ahead. When was the new covenant inaugurated? Next. Look at this. Luke 22, 19 to 20, this is the, the, when Jesus Christ um, institutes the Lord's Supper, right? We hear these words all the time, but look at this. Luke twenty two nineteen. 19, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
This is the new covenant in my blood. And then Matthew 26 says a little differently, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, what is a covenant? What is a divine covenant? Do you know the, remember the definition? A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So here you have Jesus Christ sovereignly administering this. He's not asking for input, right? And it's a bond in blood. Whose blood? His blood. The ultimate fulfillment of the, of the covenant of grace is, is inaugurated, is ratified, not by the blood of bulls and goats or animals cut in half that God walks between, as we saw with Abraham, but with his own blood, his, literally his own blood inaugurates the new covenant. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves, okay? Because when Jesus says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, and this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus said these things, his disciples would have known exactly what he was talking about. All right? This new covenant was not a new idea to the disciples. Why? Because the disciples knew the scriptures. Right? They would have, that term would have rung all kinds of bells in the minds of the disciples because they knew the scriptures. And so this terminology of a new covenant has been used by Jeremiah the prophet some 660 years before Jesus used it at the Last Supper. All right, this, this is not, the new covenant is not new. <laughs> I mean, it is, but it's not. Not a new idea. If we're gonna understand the new covenant, that's really where we're gonna need to start. Can you go forward? Here's Jeremiah 31. The first place where we have this terminology, new covenant. <clears throat> Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. These are amazing promises. Don't let this roll through your ears and not sense and taste how amazing this is. Now these promises are even more amazing when you remember what's going on in the days of Jeremiah. All right? This is not in a vacuum. This, these promises come at the darkest, darkest time in the history of God's people. So flip ahead. So we're going to read from Jeremiah 11. And I want you to see what's going on when these promises of the new covenant come. Look at this. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So what covenant is he talking about? The covenant with Israel through Moses, right? Cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice, and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people and I will be your God. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. No, go back, please. What was this promise? Who did he make that promise to? All, originally, Abraham. Okay, flip. Then I said, amen, O Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these things in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, listen to my voice, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. One more. Then the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned their back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them which they will not be able to escape though they will cry to me yet I will not listen to them. All right, you see? Covenants have promises and curses. It's a promise of cursing upon disobedience. And God is always faithful to this. And God's people have broken his covenant. Specifically, they've broken his covenant with Israel through Moses. And they've done this, the Lord says, because they have walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. So it's an internal problem that results in outward obedience of all kinds of, of evil and wickedness, including idolatry. We know from other places in Scripture, including the sacrificing of their own children to pagan gods, Moloch. Worshiping idols in the temple of the Lord. All kinds of awful, awful evil. And they have turned away from the true and living God, have given themselves to the gods of the nations. And in the book of Jeremiah, God gives one warning after another, one threat after another, one promise of judgment after another for all who will not repent and turn back to the Lord in true faith and, and obedience, but the people do not turn back to the Lord. And ultimately, God sends the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, king of the wicked nation Babylon. I mean, it's Babylon. Babylon is the arch enemy of the people of God. Think of the Tower of Babel. That's the founding of Babylon. And it's Babylon. It's the, it's the archetypical bad guys who come and take God's people off, away from the land, away from the presence of the Lord in the temple, scattering them, killing them. He undoes all of the promises, literally undoes all of the promises and brings upon them these curses. 
And he brings the king the wicked of the wicked nation Babylon to be the rod of his discipline on his rebellious people. That's what's going on. All right? It's awful. But in that context, look, next slide. These promises come. Read it again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. The problem wasn't God. The problem wasn't the covenant. The problem was them, right? Declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Remember what it says? They, in, in, in Jeremiah 11 that I just read, they, went all, they broke the covenant, they went after all these gods because of the, the stubbornness of their evil heart. Right? God deals with that, doesn't he? I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. God says more about this through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, flip it. They shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. He deals with the, the real problem, which is the heart. This is a promise of the new covenant. Notice this, all the themes here, right? They will be my people and I will be their God. They will fear me. Look at this. This is a promise of the new covenant and that theme of children, of descendants, is not just abandoned in the new covenant. Over and over again, you see, you see that theme of children. Remember this? It goes back to Adam, goes back to Noah, goes back to Abraham, goes back to Israel, goes back to David, and it is, continues right here. Right? The Lord promises a new covenant. And he, the Lord makes the same kind of promises to the prophet Ezekiel. Flip it. Same kind of language. Look at this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Flesh in that context is not bad. It means soft. We think of flesh as bad, you know. A heart of flesh is a good thing, it's, as opposed to a heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. The Lord promises a new covenant. Now, what does new mean? Flip the slide. What does new mean? Okay. Well, it can mean a couple of different things. Go ahead. Go ahead again. 
Here's the first thing it could mean. Think about how you would use that word new. A couple of different ways. I'm going to build a new house. What does that mean? The house has never existed before. It's totally new from the ground up. All right, flip it. You could say, ever since I had that knee surgery, I'm a new man. <laughs> right? Now, does that, that's not the same use, is it? It's not a man who is, did not exist before and now is totally, you know, from scratch. No. But it does mean dramatically improved. All right? The new covenant is not new in the first sense of the word new, as if it had never, you know, totally, just like totally out of the blue, nothing has ever existed before. No. The new covenant, remember, is the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace, which is God's implementation in time and history of his, of his eternal purpose to save a people for himself. The new covenant did not spring out of nowhere in a vacuum. It's not new in that sense. But the new covenant is new in the second sense of the word new. It's a covenant. It's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, but it's a dramatic improvement on the previous historical covenants. It's a dramatic improvement. How? Flip ahead. And one more. The new covenant is new in comparison to the Mosaic covenant. All right? That, when, when you read in the Bible about the old covenant, that's the covenant it's talking about. It's, it's talking about God's covenant with Israel through Moses. It is absolutely not talking about the God's covenant with Abraham. I'll show you that in a second. And it's certainly not talking about the covenant of grace. All right? It is new, even in the passage we've read from, from passages from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's the new covenant is contrasted not with the Abrahamic covenant, but with the covenant with Moses. All right? God's covenant with Abraham is never called the old covenant. Compared to the old Mosaic covenant, so we got to know what we're comparing it to, right? Not the Abrahamic covenant, but to the, the old Mosaic covenant. Compared to the old Mosaic covenant, the new covenant is a dramatic improvement indeed. Now look, let's look at some ways. It is internal versus external. Next, here are some passages. Remember, we just saw this. Jeremiah 31, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is an internal covenant. Uh, what marks the, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is that you have this external law that commands you, that condemns you, that shows you your sin, but can do nothing to come inside of you and allow you to obey it. That's what it means to be under the law. It means to have the law commanding you, revealing your sin, cursing you for disobeying it, but not doing anything to go inside of you and making you able to obey it. But that's exactly what God promises to do. To put his law within you, in a new heart, right? Next slide. It's powerful versus powerless. As we saw in Ezekiel, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and look at the words, and you will be clean. You will. He will cleanse you. 
I will, cl- I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will put my spirit within you. And look at this. Cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is not uh, an open question. This is what the Lord will do. Now this is, this is one of the most encouraging and uh, strengthening passages in the whole Bible to me. Look at it. This is sovereignly administered. This is what the Lord will do, right? You will be clean. You'll be clean from your idols. You'll have the Holy Spirit within you and he will cause you to walk. This gets picked up in in the New Testament in places like Galatians. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And then it says to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Those are bad things, not good things. The spirit is fighting against you to keep you from doing the things you want to do in your flesh. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. Think of all the Romans 8 stuff. That is what he's doing in you. And you can't stop him. All right? That's the point. Go ahead. Another slide. Hebrews 7. Again, powerful versus powerless. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. It's talking about the Old Covenant. Mosaic Covenant. For the law made nothing perfect. The law has no power to come inside you and cleanse you. It only has the power to stand outside you and condemn you. To tell you the truth, perfect righteousness of God, but it doesn't come in you and help you, right? So that's the Old Covenant. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's speaking of this new covenant, the work of Christ. Flip ahead, Brandon. Hebrews 10, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? This is the theme of the book of Hebrews over and over again. The new covenant is powerful. The old covenant is powerless to, to forgive or to cleanse or to transform. Next, third, saving versus condemning. Hebrews 7. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make, make intercession for them. He is able to save forever. Next slide. Second Corinthians 3, a long passage that we'll just dip into in a couple places real quick here to show that where Paul is contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. Look what he says. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, 
But our adequacy is from God, who has also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, again, because all it can do is condemn you, show you the the righteous standard, and then judge you for breaking it. But the Spirit, right, Ezekiel says, Jeremiah says, comes into your heart, gives you life, and makes you able to obey. One more. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant with Moses, has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. The old covenant, as I said, condemns, does not give life. The new covenant enables righteousness. Next, number four. Go ahead. Yep, reality versus shadow. We saw this in Hebrews 10 real quick. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. So the law is a shadow, right? Look down. <laughs> You'll see a shadow. Right? The, the, the real thing, the, the, the solid thing, the, the, the thing with substance casts a shadow. The shadow is there. You don't go back to the shadow you cling to the substance. So the new covenant is reality versus shadow. Next, permanent versus temporary. Jeremiah 32, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Next, Hebrews 8, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That's God's covenant with Israel through Moses. It's obsolete. Next, Galatians 3. Why the law then? The law here is the Mosaic covenant. It was added. Added to what? Added to the Abrahamic covenant. Because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, Moses, until, see that word until? The seed would come to whom the promise had been made. What does until mean? Not yet, but also, it's temporary. It's a temporary measure. And once Christ comes, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, the seed, and ultimately God's promise in Genesis 3.15, the seed, right? Until he comes, when he comes, things change. So that's how the new covenant is new. But it's not new. Go ahead and flip forward. How is it not new? Well, the new covenant is the culmination of all of God's saving purposes. Okay, go ahead and flip. It's the culmination of all of God's saving purposes. So it's not new as if, you know, totally out of blue, something totally different, totally different way of doing things now. We're going to forget everything that happened before. That's all bad. And now we're just going to start all fresh. No, that's not what it means by new, right? Look at what Jesus says. This is in um, Luke 24. This is after the resurrection 
Jesus is walking on the road, remember this, the road to Emmaus, and he meets up with some disciples and they're talking to him. They don't recognize him, remember the story? And they're telling him about what happened in Jerusalem with this, this man, Jesus. They thought he was going to be the Messiah and they're depressed now because he's dead, right? And then he starts talking to them. And he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. All of the historical covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David are administrations of the covenant of grace which culminates with the new covenant in Christ. All of that, Jesus says, the whole Old Testament. That's what this means. All the scriptures, all the Old Testament scriptures are not thrown in the trash bin when he comes. He is the fulfillment of them. All right? Do you you see this? We've seen this over and over again. The new covenant is the culmination of God's saving purposes. Now, next slide. But more particularly, the new covenant is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. All right? Remember, when we covered God's covenant with Abraham, Weeks ago, I told you that the Abrahamic covenant is the clearest expression of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. Here's why. This is Luke 1. This is Zacharias. Zacharias, remember, the father of John the Baptist. And this is what Zacharias says upon the birth of John the Baptist when God takes away his muteness. Remember the discipline? And here's what he says. Hear all of this in light of everything we've said for the last 14 weeks, all right? His father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. What should you think there, right? Davidic covenant. In the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, next slide, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Right? The coming of Christ. And John is just a forerunner of of Christ, right? As a prophet. The coming of Christ is the fulfillment of God keeping all of his promises to whom? Abraham, right? To remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. Everyone at the time understood exactly what was going on. Christ did not come out of the blue as plan B. This was always the plan. This is all of God's purposes culminating, coming to fruition. Here it is, finally. And they always think of it in terms of the covenants. Go to the next slide. We see this very clearly in Galatians, don't we? Galatians 3, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. 
Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And so, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Think about that. The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. That is the gospel. The gospel is not new. The gospel is not something totally different. It's exactly what he had said to Abraham. And Abraham believed it. And he was saved exactly the same way you and I are, by faith. Next slide. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Quote from that jewel, I think. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Next slide. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that, now notice, Let's read that without the, uh, the, the middle section here. Christ redeemed us for the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The gospel, the work of Christ, is intimately, organically, directly connected to God's promise to Abraham. You cannot separate them. You can't. It's not something different. It is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. What we have is God's fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Next slide. Later on in chapter three, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants. Yeah. You know, if you don't make that connection, then you end up throwing the Old Testament away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You have to make that connection or else you end up with two books instead of one. Old Testament, that's not for us. New Testament is for us. Well, that's certainly not what the Apostle Paul thought. It's not what Jesus thought, Luke 24. Are you with me? Remember dispensationalism that we talked about at the beginning always does that, chops them in two, that's for you, this is for us. Well, then this is gobbledygook. It's a theological, technical term, gobbledygook. All right, almost done, almost done. Oh, boy. So there's a direct organic connection in all these things. The Lord will make for himself a great nation. Think of the promises to Abraham. He will make for himself a great nation. He will cause his people to inherit, not the land of Canaan, but the whole earth. Matthew 5, 5, remember? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Not just a little piece of it, the whole thing. The Lord will dwell among his people forever in the person of Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, that's part of the promises all through the Old Testament. I will dwell with you and be your God. Well, how does that reach its fulfillment? Jesus takes on flesh. All of that is simply what God promised to Abraham. And ultimately, the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that first ancient promise that the Lord made to to Adam in Genesis 2.15. Go ahead. What is the fulfillment of Genesis 
where Satan is under his feet, right? Here it is. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Click again. He has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. One more. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. It's not just Satan who is crushed under the feet of Christ. It's all of his enemies. All of them. All of that is echoing the language of Genesis 3.15. It's a direct, direct allusion to that. And here's one last, last one. That work of crushing his enemies underfoot has been given to whom? Hello? To us. Look at that. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet because we are in Christ. This is the culmination of all, all the threads get pulled together right here, right, in the new covenant. And even right here, direct connection back to Genesis 3.15 for us. Now, Time's up. We could talk about all kinds of things. We could talk about baptism in the new covenant. We could talk about the law in the new covenant. But remember, the law of Moses, the moral law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is written on our hearts. There's not a radical break between the old and new covenant between, in terms of obedience and what that looks like. There's not a radical break in terms of children because one of the promises in the new covenant says, and your children... All right, that's just all there. But we've got to be done. So throw the grenade in your belly and, and be done. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, would you please have mercy on us and help us to live faithfully in light of this covenant that you have made with us who believe you've made us sons of Abraham by faith. You've given us work to do in this world that includes crushing Satan under our feet. What an amazing thing. You have promised to make us obedient to you. By the power of your spirit, give us faith for that. All of it is yours. Everything about it is your work. And so we call on you, Lord, to make us believe it and to live out of it. Let us embrace the whole Bible as your word, as your word to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.